Okay, engine stop. APA at a descent. Host control, both auto descent engine command override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Listen, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the season premiere of Banal of America Audio Season 1. I am Tim Banal, your host and the conductor of this train ride through the wild world of esoterica that is Banal of America Audio. I'm enormously proud to bring to you Jim Mars as our season premiere. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Jim Mars, let me give you a little bit of background about him, and then we'll just dip right into the interview. Jim Mars is an award-winning journalist. He's the author of Crossfire. This is the book that was used as the basis for the Oliver Stone film JFK, one of the books. Alien Agenda, an in-depth look at the UFO phenomenon. Rule by Secrecy, a veritable roadmap to the world of secret societies. Sci Spies, one of the first books out on remote viewing. And two 9-11 books, War on Freedom and Inside Job. He's made a ton of media appearances in on just about every esoteric radio show you can think of, and he now will hold the historic distinction of being the season premiere of Ben All of America Audio Season 1. This interview was conducted on July 28, 2005. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a very special treat for you today. Um, this is a big thrill for me, and I'm sure you're all going to be excited to hear this interview. It is with the author of Crossfire, Alien Agenda, Rule by Secrecy, Psy Spies, The War on Freedom, and Inside Job. It's Jim Mars. He's a living legend. He should be a household name to anyone who knows anything about ufology, secret societies, and conspiracy theory in general. So I'm sure the visitors of AllAmerica.com know all about you. And uh, welcome to the interview, Jim, and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak with you. Well, Tim, it's my pleasure to speak with you and your audience uh I don't, I don't really consider myself uh, this big conspiracy theorist or, or an expert on secret societies. It's simply that as a journalist uh, committed to finding truth and trying to bring that to the public, I find myself going down those roads because that's where the evidence leads. Nice, nice. Searching for answers, right? Right. Well, let's start off first with Crossfire. It was published in 1989. And uh, the first question I want to ask you was, you were pretty much a mainstream journalist beforehand before you got into making Crossfire. So what made you decide to tackle the JFK subject, and what was what was the climate of JFK research at the time? Well, I was in college at the time of the Kennedy assassination, 
at the University of North Texas, just 30 miles north of Dallas. I had been in Dallas. I was in Dallas quite often. That's where we'd go to party. And in fact, I had met Jack Ruby prior to the assassination uh, at his club. Uh, so you know, this I knew this was history, and I knew it had happened in my own backyard. So I began to collect newspapers and clippings and and information starting the very day of the assassination. Uh, and when the Warren Commission report came out and said, well, it was all Lee Harvey Oswald all by himself, that did not sit well with me because I'd heard too many, uh, too much other information that indicated that there was, of course, a, a gunman on the grassy knoll. Uh, but I didn't have anything to put in its place, so I continued with my journalism career and covering the usual news stories and particularly local things. And, and then I kept a very close tab in the late 60s on the Jim Garrison investigation in New Orleans, and my epiphany came in about 1972, late 1972, when it became apparent that President Richard Nixon had lied to us about his involvement with some of the Watergate burglars. And at that point, I realized, as did many other Americans, holy cow, the President of the United States can, has, and therefore probably will lie to us about matters of substance. And with that understanding, uh, then I began to probe more deeply into the government involvement with the JFK assassination. And by the time I began teaching a course on the Kennedy assassination at the University of Texas at Arlington in 1976, I had reached the conclusion that the Kennedy assassination was a coup d'etat. And uh, all of the information, all the investigations, everything that's happened from that point to here has done nothing but confirm that conclusion. Now, this is a question I had that I sort of filed away. I, I, was, I do a lot of reading, so I've heard other various theories on the JFK assassination, and this is sort of one of those, if you ever... Well, well uh, Tim, yep. that is part of the cover-up. There has never been a cover-up in the Kennedy assassination uh, in the classic sense of a cover-up in that we cannot get any information. It's been a cover-up through obfuscation, okay? Uh, there are so many theories, so many contradictory bits of information, so many contradictory pronouncements out there by a wide range of people that the average person just, after a while, tends to tune out and say, oh, man, I don't want to hear any more about that. <laughs> All right, yeah, I see where you're going with that. Um, now, here's here's where here's what I want to ask you about because this is something that, that sort of popped up in my mind in, when I was reading things. Um, now, what do you think the motive, the overall greater motive behind the JFK assassination was? Uh, was it a coup d'état of the of the total executive office, like for not just the Kennedy administration, but for the from that point forward, and um, what do you think of the theories that it was partially a Masonic ritual? Okay, hold the Masonic ritual thought. Okay. Let's get through uh, the first one. Yeah, what we know here. Okay. Um, at its very basis, I think you'll find the Kennedy assassination was a public execution as part of a coup d'etat, because coup d'etat means the, the uh, overthrow of a government through a violent act. This was, uh, it was a public execution, and it was carried out for the same reason that we publicly execute criminals, and that is to serve as a deterrent to anyone who would even think about following in his footsteps. 
and it has proved quite successful because no matter what end of the political spectrum you're on, almost everyone agrees that the course of this nation has gone steadily downhill since uh, 1963, and, and uh, we have not had any dynamic leadership since that time. Um, so that's the basis of it. Now, once you exclude foreign enemies, you know, Castro did it, uh, the Russians did it, the Chinese did it, and there's very little to no evidence that would substantiate any of that. And the key question is, is that although any of those foreign nations might have hired assassins or created a plot to kill the president, could they have totally subverted a truthful investigation into that assassination? And of course the answer is no. So we have to look at domestic enemies of John F. Kennedy. In that regard, there's been ongoing controversies over the years. Was it the mafia? Was it the CIA? Was it the military? Was it the anti-Castro Cubans? Was it the FBI? And the answer appears to be yes. All of the above. And where do we see a nexus of all these supposedly separate groups? In Operation Mongoose, the secret war against Castro. There we see mafia people working with CIA people under the eyes of the FBI agents. We're involving anti-Castro Cubans, and the object is to knock out Castro up to and including assassination plots. So it is certainly no stretch of the imagination to see that all they had to do was send their hit teams to Dallas because the idea and the minds of these groups back in, in the early 1960s was that they began to realize that their biggest problem was in the White House, not in Havana. So there we have the background for the, this commonality of purpose that resulted in the shooting in Dealey Plaza. And then when you go and realize that the mafia uh, had leverage over the head of the FBI, Hoover, because of their knowledge and proof that, uh, of his sexual proclivities, and when you realize that the mafia also had a hold over Lyndon Johnson, because of the payoffs that he had received from organized crime in Texas for years, uh, then you begin to realize that they had leverage over the leadership of the federal government, and this accounts for the total lack of any meaningful investigation into the Kennedy assassination. They simply uh, front-loaded the evidence against Lee Harvey Oswald and and he was the fall guy. In his own words, he was a patsy. And they said, he did it all by himself, and let's move on. And they did. And uh, this is one reason that I've written uh, two books now on uh, the attacks of 9-11, because it's been more than 42 years now since the Kennedy assassination. And although the latest polls show that the vast majority of people now understand that there was more than one gunman and that he was killed as the result of a conspiracy, this has still not been fully acknowledged by the federal government. All right. Now, what about the Masonic ritual aspect? I'm well, sure you've heard about that kind of stuff, right? Oh, yes. And I've looked at that quite carefully. And there are some really intriguing things 
starting with the fact that Dallas sits on the 33-degree uh, longitude, <laughs> if that means anything. Uh, the founders of Dallas uh, were Masons. Of course, the founders of this country were Masons. Um, but frankly, Tim, in my studies, I feel like that particularly in American Masonry, uh, that over the years, and certainly since they were so debilitated back in the early 1800s uh, with the uh, scandal and the uh, anti-Masonic party, most people don't realize the first third party in the United States was the anti-Masonic party. Um, but since that time, I think that American masonry has, has more or less devolved into a fraternal brotherhood. In other words, good old boy network, you make business contacts, and they do some tremendously good work with their burn centers. And I, I for one, do not see that the masons as a organization uh, either have the capacity, nor would they have probably considered trying to uh, take such drastic action against an American president. Um, they, I think you're going to find the culprits uh, uh, a lot more tighter knit, and we're talking about uh, the mob did the hit with the uh, assistance of the CIA, knowing that they had full cover from Lyndon Johnson, his successor, and his next-door neighbor and old buddy, J. Edgar Hoover. All right. How extensive was your role uh, with the JFK films? You sell them the, the the rights and pretty much that you saw it in the theater. Well, yeah, but it was pretty extensive. Uh, you have to understand that my book Crossfire was one of two books that Oliver Stone used as the basis uh, for the movie. Uh, the other book, of course, was on the trail of the assassins by uh, District Attorney Jim Garrison. Uh, I met with Garrison, uh, and his book detailed. The, his investigation from the standpoint of New Orleans and the trial of Clay Shaw that took place in New Orleans. My book provided the factual background for the assassination itself. So when they were in Dallas filming for several weeks, I was on the set every day and I was a chief consultant to what went on there. Oh, okay. And it was pretty gratifying because there were instances where I would approach Stone and say, I think you're making a mistake here. I think actually this came down like this. And he actually would change uh, change the thing. Huh. Now, when they approached you about the film uh, from the beginning, were you surprised they would even make a JFK movie? Yes, it totally caught me by surprise. I, I will freely admit I just was very fortunate in that I was uh, in the right place at the right time. Um, I was told later that Stone had already made the decision to uh, devote a film to the JFK assassination. And it only makes sense because if you'll follow his trend at that time, you see that he had made Platoon, which was about the U.S. combat experience in Vietnam, and he was a combat veteran of Vietnam and very, very, you know, had a very close personal interest in that. And then he made Born on the Fourth of July, which gave the American soldiers experience on returning home from Vietnam. And then he made another film on the experience of the Vietnamese. So it's only natural that he then took stepped back, took a broader look, and said, you know, why did all this happen? And, of course, that leads right back to the Kennedy assassination. All right. Now let's, uh, I'm going to move on to Alien Agenda. And that was published in 1997. And for starters... You approached uh, the subject as an outsider. Well, wait, can I give you the link? 
between Kennedy and the uh, oh, I love it, and the UFOs. Oh, let's go do it. Yeah. Okay. Some years ago, a doc, uh, what appeared to be government document, surfaced, and it was a report dated uh, summer of 1947 by something called the Interplanetary Phenomenon Group. When I first saw that, I couldn't help but snicker. I thought, oh, that sounds like something somebody's just concocted, you know. So that's a sci-fi thing. But it now has been determined that, yes, in 1947, there was a government entity known as the Interna Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit. And so there's every reason to believe that this report that has become public is legitimate. And it is reporting on the famous Roswell crash. And it points out that there were two different landing zones, and uh, it points out correctly what has caused so much confusion by people who have been studying Roswell. Is some people say, "Oh, it happened here," and others said, "No, it's over here at Socorro." And there's been lots of controversy. Apparently, it's all the same incident. That whatever it was came in close to the ground, either struck the ground or possibly exploded, scattering wreckage over a widespread area, and then like ricocheted or careened on and ended up several miles away. And this is exactly what's reflected in this Interplanetary Phenomenon Group report. The tie-in with the Kennedy assassination is, at the very back of this report, they make particular note that one member of Congress who knew the truth about what crashed at Roswell was Representative John F. Kennedy of Massachusetts. And they correctly said that he had served with naval intelligence during World War II, which he had, but most people don't know that. They only remember him for the famous PT-109 incident. And that his father had served on the uh, Government Reorganization Committee, which was true, but most people don't know that. Again, it lends a lot of authenticity to this document. And they said apparently Kennedy found out the truth about Roswell because of a contact with the Secretary of the Air Force. Now, this begins a long chain of evidence showing that President Kennedy, perhaps of all the modern presidents, had a very high interest in the UFO subject. And there are even memos from the White House in the fall of 1963 ordering the CIA to turn over all UFO files to the White House. This would be tantamount to making that public. And uh, actually, although I still do not subscribe to the theory that Kennedy was assassinated to prevent him from revealing UFO secrets, I am now of the opinion that that may indeed have been yet another straw that broke the camel's back. Hmm. Wow. All right. So you approached uh, ufology sort of as an outsider. So what did you think of the actual field of ufology when you began doing Alien Agenda? Well, uh, again, I, go, I can go back to when I was a young man in the 50s, and I, I can prove this because I, ha I found not too long back I was digging through my attic space, and I found a watercolor I'd done um, about a UFO incident in Texas many years ago. And uh, so I, I had done a watercolor based on newspapers reports of this object that landed out near Leveland, Texas. Um, and when I went back and checked on when that happened, it was like 1954 or something like that, maybe 56, anyway, mid-50s. 
So I can legitimately say that I've had an interest in UFO since the 50s. But I was like everybody else. I didn't know. I didn't know what was true, what was not true. Uh, for example, for many years, the official word was that UFOs did not exist, that they were just hallucinations, uh, ball lightning, uh, or perhaps some mass psychosis. Well, uh, by the time I was working professionally as a newsman, I, I remember that, and I thought, well, you know, gee, there's a really big story right there, some heretofore undiagnosed, contagious mass psychosis. <laughs> but, of course, you never see anything about that because it's, it's just horse-pucky. Um, and you don't hear anything today. In recent years, you haven't heard anything. Oh, they're just hallucinations or mass psychosis. And why is that? Because the advent of the camcorder. Today, everybody's got a camcorder, and there's not a day goes by that somebody doesn't get a really good video of a UFO. So there's obviously something up there flying around. Now, so, the, so now the explanation from the debunkers, uh, they've dropped this hallucination and, and uh, uh, mass psychosis explanation, and the explanation now is that it's just misidentified conventional aircraft, military civilian, uh, satellites, uh, perhaps secret government test craft, okay? Well, that makes sense, too. The only problem is, if you'll really look at the record, you'll find that UFO sightings and reportings date back all through history, all the way back to the fiery wheel that Ezekiel saw in the Bible. And coming forward to the great airship mystery of 1896-97, and I would particularly point to that one because I think that is the smoking gun of the UFO issue. Uh, I live in Wise County, Texas, and just a few miles from my home is a little place called Aurora, Texas. It's just a bump in the road. But according to the Dallas Morning News, which is still in publication, and the Fort Worth newspapers, which uh, were then combined into the, my old newspaper, the Forest Star Telegram, on the front page on April the 19th, 1897, it was recorded that a large silver cigar-shaped object, apparently in trouble, was approaching the ground, struck a windmill in Aurora, Texas, and blew up, scattering pieces all over the place, and that the remains of the pilot uh, were badly disfigured, but enough was recovered to show that he was not an inhabitant of this world. And this was straight news reporting on the front pages of the Dallas Fort Worth papers in 1897, and this was six years before the Wright brothers flew at Kitty Hawk. So there was no man-made objects in the air at that time. This is a real smoking gun. Now, the debunkers over the years have tried, they can't deny that the reports are in the newspapers because it's right there in the microfilm. What they've tried to argue is that it was simply a hoax story planted in the paper to draw attention to the dying town of Aurora. Okay, this makes some sense, and I've paid close attention to that for a long time. But sometime back, I got hold of the entire front page of the Dallas Morning News back in the spring of 1897. There are 16 stories on that front page coming from correspondence ranging from southern Oklahoma to as far south as Austin, Texas, and every single one of those 16 stories concerns the large silver cigar-shaped object flying through the skies of North Texas. So they might still be able to argue whether or not it crashed at Aurora, 
but in my mind, there is no argument that something was flying over Texas in 1897, years before the Wright brothers ever lifted off at Kitty Hawk. The field of ufology, like the scientific field, and the, all the various researchers and, and the specializations that are involved in it, um, where do you think ufology needs to evolve to get more answers? It needs to evolve into a scientifically studied subject. Now, the reason it is not so far, again, we can go back to government documents, which I have in my files, which show that beginning in the early 50s, there was a conscious and concerted program on the part of the federal government of the United States to debunk UFOs to uh, for denial first. They denied anything there. There's nothing there, folks. And then this is the one that really gets me, ridicule. If you persisted in saying you had seen something, then they would call your sanity into question. And this combined denial by official sources and ridicule uh, was quite successful for about 50 years of keeping the whole subject of UFOs uh, off the front burner and out of the public's mind. And they have done this through a total media blackout. They have, they've done this through grants to universities and institutions of higher learning. If someone tries to step forward and say, I want to study UFOs, they are not only told no, they're laughed out of the room, okay? And this has been quite successful in keeping this topic uh, off the public discussion table. That's breaking down right now, okay? Again, because of the camcorders and because people, uh, you know, we have uh, last fall, we had, uh, or earlier this year, we had the uh, Peter Jennings report on UFOs on ABC News. Um, and it was actually, they tried the same debunking techniques, but in amongst that, they actually had some good reporting. For example, he did discuss the Robinson panel in the Operation Blue Book, which was uh, the official government's response back in the 50s and the 60s, and Peter Jennings on national TV just flat sat there and told us that these were not scientific investigations into UFOs, but were public relations efforts to get people to quit thinking about them. So... The reason for that is myriad, okay? Back in the 50s when the poll showed that uh, virtually no one in this country believed that there was any kind of intelligent life out in space, uh, it was very easy for the leaders to think that if it was revealed that there was intelligent life in space and that they was visiting this planet, that widespread panic and chaos might result. And I think maybe at that time, based on that time's mindset, that might have been a legitimate concern, uh, like sort of like Orson Welles' War of the World Panic in 1938. But I don't think that holds true today, okay? With uh, the generations that have grown up with Star Wars and Star Trek, I think if the government announced today, hey, we have evidence that there is intelligent life outside this planet, and it is visiting here on occasion, but we have no evidence to suggest or prove that it's hostile. Uh, they're, they're, as far as we know, nobody's been killed. There's many reports of people being taken, but they're always brought back. And we're on this. We're going to keep an eye on this. We'll see what we can do. No need for panic. I, I don't think there'd be any panic. I think most people will be, yeah, okay. Um, the reason for the secrecy, particularly today, is that the wealthy 
oligarchy that runs this country, and I'm not talking about the presidency or the Congress. These are just hired administrators. I'm talking about the people with the real money. They owe their wealth and power to their monopolies over energy, pharmaceuticals, telecommunications, transportation. They don't care if we know there's aliens out there, but they very much care that if we know there's aliens, then we'll also know that there's alternative technologies that might threaten their monopolies in these areas. And that's why they want to keep the cover on the whole UFO subject. And it's really created quite a schizophrenic response in our society. On the one hand, you go to a movie, you watch TV, you pick up a comic book, you read a sci-fi book, you look at bumper stickers and, and plaques and T-shirts, and that, there's aliens everywhere you turn. And yet, when you say, well, let's have a serious scientific uh, study of this subject, uh, everybody wants to hoot you down. But as I say, that's changing, and it's changing rapidly. And this is why Dr. Michael Sala and uh, Weber and various other people uh, are now pushing very hard for the serious study and research into what they call exopolitics, which is the political scene put into a framework that includes extraterrestrial contact. Disclosure in general, uh, do you see it happening, and if so, how and when? Dr. Stephen Greer is one of those that's been leading the crusade to try to get open disclosure. Uh, I would also mention Steve Bassett, who is a lobbyist in Washington and has been lobbying on behalf of several UFO groups for a number of years now for open disclosure. This is how bad it is, Tim. Uh, about two years ago, they put together maybe 250 federal government whistleblowers. These are people who had worked at Area 51, people who had been in the military, people who had had first-hand experience with extraterrestrial contact and UFOs. Out of these, they got about 60 of them who are willing to actually travel to Washington, and they had a huge press conference at the National Press Club. All of the major media was there. These people all got up and said, this is true, this is happening, I know because I was there and I was part of it. And nobody heard a word about it. It didn't go anywhere. It didn't get out of the mass to the mass media. They didn't talk about it. It got buried under the rug, and that was the end of that. So, as I tell my class on UFOs at the university, I use this example: if I let you hold a quarter and then ask for it back, and I put it in my pocket and then deny that I ever had a quarter or that I even still have a quarter, how can you prove? that I've got the quarter, except picking me up and shaking me upside down until the quarter drops out of my pocket. And that is the problem. We cannot empty the pockets of the federal government. And as long as they continue to deny that anything's happening and that where's the proof, they say. Well, the proof is is that they come along and pick up all the proof and then deny they have anything. It's the quarter, and we can't empty their pockets. <laughs> All right. Um, now, today I've been following this story with uh, NASA and their problems with the shuttle and all that. And by the time this airs, probably people it will be old news by then. But, but right. the, the crux of the question is, 
Uh, why do you think NASA is so ineffectual since they landed on the moon? And uh, do you think it's a cover for something else, like, like a covert space program? Yes, personally, I tend to believe in a covert space program. And see, if that ever came out, the people who have squandered billions of dollars over the last 30 years or so in public tax money on outdated, outmoded, and obsolete rocket technology could be held accountable. Okay? And that's another reason they don't want the truth of this out. I have very good reason to believe and am continuing to research into anti-gravity experimentation that actually goes back to World War II when the Nazis were working on this. A lot of people don't realize this, but at the end of World War II when the Allied armies overran Germany uh, and overran some of their secret test facilities, they actually had flying saucers on the drawing board. That's historic fact. Uh, there has been argument over whether or not they actually test flew any. I have good reason to believe they did, and that this technology fell into our hands. There were magazine articles and public statements by aviation uh, officials in the early 50s that basically said they were working on a whole new generation of aircraft based on anti-gravity. And then, all of a sudden, all talk of that dried up. Anti-gravity became just like UFOs. You can't even bring up the term in polite company without getting snickered at uh, because the more educated people have been educated and conditioned to the, to the idea that that doesn't exist. That's just science fiction. So they turn up their nose at it. But yet there's plenty of information to show that some of these UFOs that are zipping around and, and making hairpin turns and dives and curves that uh, go against all conventional aerodynamics may indeed be some of our own test craft using very exotic technology. What about NASA, though? Do you think they're just ineffectual? Or, or? NASA stands for never a straight answer. <laughs> and there's lots and lots of problems with NASA and lots of questions about what they're doing. Again, if we do have this exotic technology, and they are still sending up these little rocket-boosted space shuttles, uh, which keep us distracted from many things. Uh, they could be held accountable. So, again, they're certainly not going to admit to any of this. And I think what we would see is, is that they would struggle along, keep asking for more and more budgets, and stringing out missions so that they can keep that whole NASA thing going when actually it's pretty obsolete. Um, and by using obsolete uh, technology, of course, they open themselves up to accidents like the Columbia explosion and the problems they were having on this latest one. Now, do you think maybe their uh, their lack of they're bumbling? They're just bumbling all the time. Well, it seems like bumbling, but that's a distraction to keep us from. I have every reason to believe, and I cover it quite extensively in my book, Alien Agenda, that uh, there are people within NASA who know. Uh, the truth of the matter. So it goes beyond bundling. Well, they, uh, this is a cover-up, a massive cover-up. In fact, um, I spoke with uh, Dr. Uh, Edgar Mitchell, the sixth-man astronaut to walk on the moon, okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, he was very open about extraterrestrials. And in fact, he has publicly stated that some of our most recent uh, technology stems from the reverse engineering of, of uh retrieved alien UFOs. So, you know, 
that information, and there's other people uh, who talked about, other astronauts, uh, Gordon Cooper, for one, uh, and several others, that have quite openly talked about UFOs. But that doesn't reach everybody because of the corporate control over the mass media. And that is, there's one of the biggest problems, Tim. Uh, UFO reporting, they, they report it all over the place, but you don't hear about it. Um, there could be UFO, a tremendous UFO sighting with videotape, sound, everything else in California, and it might get good coverage in, say, the Fresno newspapers or a local television station, but we don't hear about it. Same thing in Georgia. Same thing in Phoenix. Same thing in Chicago. It's happening all over, but nobody understands this because of the control over the media. And when I can say the control over the media, obviously they cannot control every reporter and editor out across this nation of ours. I'm not saying that. They control the distribution of the information. And if you don't hear about it, then as far as you know, nothing's happened and it's not happening and it's not real. And that is the big problem in ufology. All right, all right. I just want to go back to this NASA thing because I was in the middle. I wanted to make a point about oh, this. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Oh, it's all right. Don't worry about it. Um, now they're bumbling. That's that's obvious. But and like you said, it's not just bumbling. Do you think that it's a, a conditioning process to sort of make the uh, the American people disinterested in space travel? And the whole concept, you know, they keep making mistakes, and eventually people are going to be like, why are we bothering with this? Shut down NASA or, I you know, think, I, I, Yeah, I think that that's a very real possibility. I think that they are doing that, and I'll give you another aspect of NASA that would, I think, even further confirm that. In recent years, there's been lots of other countries, Japan, for example, the European Union for another, and private companies right here in the United States who have taken it upon themselves to initiate um, space travel. They're going to launch uh, expeditions to the moon. They're going to try to send expeditions to Mars. Now, you would think that since we're all humanity and we're all from Earth, and this is our, our giant leap for mankind, that NASA would be agreeable to such efforts and would be helpful and would try to share information and try to help these various other groups to uh, achieve their space flight objectives, but when you stop and look at it, you find it's quite the opposite. They impede these efforts. Why do they not want us to go out there? Why, uh, you know, that's, uh, there is a, a sub rosa struggle going on for the uh, control of space, and it may not simply include us humans, but there's something very, very funny going on. And you're right, too, about the fact that they went to the moon six times, or so they say, and yet we never went back. As a young man, I can recall that before the moon landing in 1969, we were all told that if we could get to the moon, we were going to set up bases on the moon, we were going to mine minerals on the moon, and the, all of this would then uh, make profit for NASA and that it would pay for our uh, space exploration. But none of that's ever happened. And why is that? I think these are serious questions that people need to be asking. But So instead of getting bogged down with uh, should we fund a mission to Mars, should we fund a deep space mission to, to uh, one of the moons of uh, Jupiter, uh, I think we should be asking, you know, 
why are we not, if we could put a man on the moon, we ought to have been further than the moon by now. Exactly. I mean, you know, that's more than 30 years ago. Uh, go back and look at a 30-year-old car. Uh, they might be cute, but they're obsolete, yeah. you know? So, and yes, we're still using those old boosters that rockets, you know, that's very little different uh, from the original V2s that the Germans were sending up. You've been, uh, you've been studying the, the whole UFO phenomenon for a long time, and I'm sure you've collected a lot of information and everything. And in your opinion, overall, what is the, the alien agenda? I'm sure you get that question a lot. What, what's, right. what's the alien agenda? You know? Well, th there's some problems involved in that. That's, it's like, Tim, if you and I were standing on a street corner and you looked up and there was a, a uh, airliner flying over, 767, and you said, hey, what's their agenda? <laughs> you see the problem? Exactly, yeah. Okay. In my opinion, we're dealing, and based on my research, I think we're dealing with uh, a number of races, space-faring races, who visit this planet from time to time for a variety of reasons, okay? Some of them may be coming to try to pick up some raw material. Some of them may come, be coming to see if they can't genetically help us out uh, and boost us into the future. Uh, some maybe just come in to watch the prairie dogs, you know. That's, when I was in college in West Texas, there uh, wasn't a whole lot going on in the little town, and so everybody go watch the prairie dog village and just, you know, entertainment. Might be that. So I think that there are a number of species that are visiting this planet, um, and for a number of reasons, some of which may be benevolent, some of which may be less so. But I think it's encouraging to me to stop and think that since the historical record clearly shows that UFOs have been a part of man's experience since as far back as written records exist, they are mentioned in the cuneiform writing of the Sumerians, they are mentioned in the Hindu Vedas, some of the earliest writings we have, and since that's the case, uh, as far as we know, they, their agenda is not to come and blow up our cities and and capture everybody or kill everybody as in Independence Day. Uh, and if that was their agenda, and since it's obvious they've been around certainly since 1947, why didn't they attack us then when all we had to stop them was propeller-driven airplanes and machine guns? Now we have lasers and, and space deep space platforms and uh, all kinds of things. So as far as an overt attack goes, this does not seem to be the alien agenda. Just go back to disclosure a little bit. I wanted to ask you, uh, if it ever happens, it's going to be on the government's terms, would you think? If, if they disclose, it'll, Possibly. you know. Actually, that? I think it's going to be on the aliens' terms. <laughs> okay. okay? Yeah. Because uh, here's the thing. They'll force it, the hand? Yeah. You, you, I'm sure you recall the thing that flew over Phoenix. Yeah. Okay, well, that happened in 1997, I believe, and... Uh, uh, that only happened for just a few minutes at, and at night, okay? What happens if they reveal themselves during daylight hours and, and hang over a major city for several hours long enough for the TV crews to get out and get some really good pictures? Uh, hey, <laughs> the cover's off then. <laughs> you know, it's blown. So, no, I think they control it even more than the government. All right. Although the government, of course, also has the option of calling a press conference and saying, okay, folks, 
uh, we're going to open up. Here's the truth. Here's what we know. Here's what, when we knew it, and we're just going to set the record straight. But when has the government ever done that? <laughs> that ain't going to happen. Is a, is a global government, is that more conducive, do you think, to disclosure than the present uh, geopolitical power structure? Well, it all depends on who, who gets control of it. Let me make a real point here. This is a point I've been trying to make, particularly when I talk to people about my book, Ruled by Secrecy. That's where we're going okay. next. So, good. That it is clear that there is a globalist movement going on in the secret societies, I call them secret societies, that actually control this country more than anyone cares to think about. And these secret societies are not secret from the standpoint that nobody knows they're there. They're secret because you and I cannot be members no matter how much money we have. You have to be invited to be a member, and then you have to be qualified, and then you have to go through a very strict screening process to make sure that you uh, believe the things they believe. And these secret societies include the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, the Trilateral Commission, and the inner core elite of those two groups, which meet with world elites once a year under the name Bilderberger. They're so secretive they don't even have a name. They're called the Bilderbergers because they were first publicly identified as meeting in 1954 at the Bilderberg uh, over in Holland. Um, these people are the very people who don't care if we know there's aliens out there, but they don't want us to know that uh, there's alternative technologies because it might upset their monopolies. Um, now, they make, what is their agenda? It's very clear. They make no secret about it. They are globalists. They want one world government with a one world military force for enforcement. They want one world economic system, a one world military system, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I want to make this very clear here. Philosophically, I am not opposed to the concept of this new world order or a one united world. Uh, we are moving rapidly into a phenomenal future. And I can perfectly well see that within our lifetimes, when somebody says, hey, where are you from? You might respond, I'm from Earth. So we are one humanity. And it's only reasonable that at some point we're going to have to have someone who represents the planet. In fact, it may be the reason that we have not had open, uh, overt contact with an alien intelligent race is simply the fact that there's no one who speaks for Earth. Who are they going to talk to? Putin? He doesn't speak for the Earth. George W. Bush? I hope not. Uh, a lot of people don't even think he speaks for the United States. So, you know, uh, we've got to have somebody who speaks for Earth. But now here's the problem. These globalists, because of their wealth and their power due to their monopolies, have the idea that they are the ones who should run the world because they have the money and the, and the power and the intelligence to do so. And, but the question is this. Let's assume that they achieve their purpose. And through these interlocking trade agreements and this no more bound, no more borders, philosophy and uh, the unions that they're putting together in the North American Trade Union and all of this stuff, they actually do succeed in binding the world into a new world order. What is our guarantee 
that some new Hitler-like tyrant won't gain control of that incredible central authority. And the answer is, not only do we not have any such guarantee, but let's face it, Tim, we're not even really supposed to be talking about this because it's just conspiracy theory. <laughs> and yet it's going into practice, becoming a reality every day. Well, now we get to rule by secrecy, which is really, uh, I told you this story when we talked offline, but I should probably share it with the listening audience. But what, what started me in the entire realm of esoteric research was rule by secrecy. I was at a Barnes & Noble. I saw it on the shelf. I said, this looks pretty interesting. I'll check it out. And I haven't looked back since. So, Well, you are out loud. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, I, think, I think if people have this overview, this alternative view of history, um, Franklin Roosevelt once said that when it comes to politics, if something happens, you better believe that it was planned that way. In other words, there are very few accidents in history. Or my line is, if it's not an act of God, it's a conspiracy. <laughs> and now that sounds kind of cute, but if you'll think about it, it's very true. Yes, cars have collisions. Uh, planes crash, ships sink. There are acts of God. There are accidents. But, but especially if something happens as a world event or even a national event or particularly in business, you know, if you stop and think about it, that's not an accident. Somebody planned it that way. In fact, Tim, let me share with you and your audience what I consider not only the proof of conspiracy, but proof of the greatest conspiracy going on in the world today. We don't like to think about this, but if we'll all stop, we'd have to agree that, one, even while we're listening and conducting this interview, there are thousands, perhaps millions, of children all around the earth who are literally starving to death. That's incredible, but it's true. Now, I think we'd also be forced to admit that we have the technology on the shelf right now on this planet that we could feed every single person in this world. In, this, in our country, in the USA, every year we pay millions of dollars of tax money to farmers not to plant crops so that they don't drive down the, uh, uh, the prices on the agriculture market. Well, let's go ahead and plant those crops. Uh, we have the technology. We have the means of producing enough food for everybody on this planet. That's a given. So why is it that these millions of children are starving? I don't want that. You don't want that. I don't think anybody that's listening to this would say, oh, yeah, I want, I want those kids to starve. Nobody's going to say that. So we don't really want that. Then why is it happening? Because once you get past the rationales, oh, well, there's politics and national boundaries and transportation costs and blah, 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 blah. That's, that's just rationales. Once you get past that, you realize that the reason children are starving all around the planet today is because somewhere, somebody wants it that way. Because if nobody wanted it that way, it wouldn't be that way. We would find the ways and the means to get food to those children. Okay? So there you have it. 
That's the biggest conspiracy going on today, and it is proof that there is conspiracy because without conspiracy, there's really no rational reason why there's anybody going hungry on this planet today. That's somebody that you're speaking of. I was kind of segues perfectly into the next question. I was going to say, um, how many people are at the very top of this pyramid structure? The ones, you know, the ones who have all the answers right. and the power. How many people are there? And you know, who do you think they are? You know, you don't have to tell me their names or anything. But well, I you know. could list you a whole list of names. It's not going to do any good because you <laughs> wouldn't recognize their name. Neither would anybody else. These people are very. Uh, when you get to. Uh, Positions like that, uh, you don't want people to know your name, okay? <laughs> and your name does not appear very often in uh, in, in public media. Um, there's not very many of them, okay? Perhaps a couple of thousand at the most, and probably less than that. Now, a couple of thousand sounds like a lot of people, but when you consider the 6.5 billion souls on this planet, that's uh, just a fraction, a tiny fraction. And yet, and also think of it this way. Because when you think of the whole world, it's easy to go, oh, man, that's a whole big, huge world, 6.5 billion people. You know, God, how's that going to work? Nobody can control that. Well, don't think of it that way. Think of these 2,000 as being a little bitty small town. And most all of us have had experiences with little bitty small towns of 2,000 or, or less. And you go to any little small town of 2,000, and you find that there's always a pecking order, okay, a pyramid of power. And at the very apex is usually one person. Uh, he might be the banker. He might be a leading attorney. He might be the newspaper editor. But there's always one person that's kind of top of the food chain. And when he says, uh, I think we're going to put Tim in as sheriff, uh, Tim usually gets in because everybody else falls in the line, and that's the way it works. Well, extrapolate that up to the world with these 2,000 people who are in touch, or many of whom are sitting on on uh, interlocking boards of directorships with some of these big international corporations, and it's very easy to see how that uh, they can maintain their ownership and hence control uh, over all the rest of us. Um, the Project Censored, which each year comes out with the 25 top news stories, has come out, and they have identified that only 118 people control just about everything we see and hear in this country today. These 118 sit and are on cross-interlocking directorships with, uh, with the three or four major corporations that own or control uh, publishing, magazines, newspapers, radio, TV, Internet, you name it. They all control it, three or four corporations. And of those three or four corporations, 118 people, with cross-connecting uh, directorships control those corporations. And they, the same 118 people sit on the boards of 64 other corporations, including Halliburton and, and uh, Carlisle Group and, and uh, the, uh, uh, these defense contractors, GE and, and uh, uh, Bechtel and all of these guys. Now, since they derive a huge amount of their profits from the military and from military and defense spending, uh, do you really think that they're going to be amenable to shutting down the Iraqi war? Of course not. And then the pyramid-style power structure goes right on down. 
the, the two or three of their board of directors don't want to hear anything that's going to make people uh, become reluctant to support uh, the Iraqi war. So that drifts down to the president of the network, which drifts down to the vice presidents, which drifts on down to the editors and to the uh, producers. And if you go to them and say, hey, I, I've got a really heart-rending story here about how that uh, we're killing all these children in Iraq, or better yet, you go to them with a factual story where you have the uh, commander of one of our divisions stating blankly that 99.9% of the people that were fighting in Iraq contrary to the official pronouncements, are Iraqis who simply want us out of their country. And if you had ever put your shoe in the other man's foot, I think everybody could identify with this. What if the Red Chinese Army came over here and occupied uh, Chicago? What would all those people in Chicago be doing? They'd be shooting at them. You know? Come on. But see, if, that, if you bring them that story, uh, you haven't heard that story because it's not put out on the media. Why? Because the editor sees that story and goes, oops, um, I know my producer isn't going to want that, so he shells it. And if the producer sees it, he says, well, I know the vice president over me wouldn't want that story. And the vice president says, well, I know the president wouldn't want that story. The president says, I know those guys on the board don't want that story. And that story never gets told. That is, the I think, and it may be because I'm coming from a background in the media, in the news media, but I think that's, the biggest problem maybe we're facing in this country. Every other problem, anything you care to bring up, I think could be addressed and could be settled fairly if everyone was fully apprised of the facts of that situation. But we are propagandized, conditioned, spun, distracted, everything under the world by the very news organizations that crow and advertise you can't see a bus going by without saying, tune in to here. You know, you trust us. Yeah. Okay? Do you think there's factions within this pyramid for control uh, of the eventual New World Order? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's one of the, one of the redeeming things that has prevented the, uh, the total takeover by New World Order before now is that sometimes they can't get their act together. Uh, sometimes, in fact, uh, during a Bilderberg meeting uh, in 2002, uh, there was uh, apparently quite a split between those who wanted to invade Iraq and those who did not, okay? But then that gets into a lot of other things. But the point is, is that they're not totally united, and they have their own little imperatives to uh, jealously guard. and. As long as they have to stop and kind of struggle with each other, then that only helps us. I think the other thing that has kept certainly the United States uh, from falling into the New World Order as rapidly as they would like is several things. Number one, we have a tradition of individual liberty and freedom in this country. Number two, uh, that uh, tradition is supported by the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights, which gives us the legal foundation for this freedom and, and uh, liberty. And thirdly, we have guns. And there's plenty of people in this country, if they're pushed hard enough, they will resist. And they know that. And that's the only thing that's stopped us before now from coming under this new world order. But they're working hard on all of that, aren't they? Uh, you know, the yeah. uh, war on terrorism is, is slowly eroding all our uh, individual liberty and 
rights. And then, uh, and then uh, you hear nowadays if you, in fact, I have seen bulletins put off, put out to law enforcement people who say be question and be leery of people who cite the Constitution. They are about to make it unpatriotic to try to stand on the Constitution of the United States. Now, that sounds incredible, but that is exactly what's going on. And today, if you stand up and say, hey, I'm for constitutional rights, then, number one, you're automatically on some government watch list, and number two, you're styled as being somewhat unpatriotic. And, of course, I don't even have to go into the fact that there has been just a continuing push to register and take away gun rights. Okay? Yep. Coming off that question, uh, China. Do you think they're a part of uh, the overall New World Order globalist movement, or are they sort of um, a side faction, one of the factions that's fighting for control against the U.K.-U.S. New World Order? I know that recently those are news stories where uh, China and Russia were wanting to form their own style of New World Order. Do you think that the stage is being set for a showdown between, you know, the two parties who want to control the world? That's a very interesting question, and uh, I'm not even sure that if there's any one person that has a clear answer to all of that. But number one, I know that uh, having visited in China, that you have a real pyramid power structure over there. You've got a handful of people at the top that control that huge country that makes up about a third of the population of the world. Um, and they have cut their deals with the New World Order people. They are part of it. If you don't believe me, just go into any Walmart, pick up anything, it's going to say made in China. <laughs> you know, they are now the producing nation, and we are the consumers. Yeah. Okay? Um, so, yes, they are definitely part of the New World Order that we were speaking of. However, I think that you're also partially correct in saying that they may have their own ideas of how this should run, and they may not run in tandem with the people who traditionally have controlled the New World Order from Europe and from the United States. And now whether or not this is going to result in a showdown or not, uh, I have no idea. Frankly, I would, I would tend to doubt that because this is all about power, which translates into money, okay? And as long as everybody at the top is making tons of money, then uh, I think that what we're going to see is this: if this is acted out, it will not be by revolution or by war, active warfare. It would it'll be by leverage takeovers and buyouts. That about does it for this week's Spin All of America audio. Next week, we pick it up where we left off with Jim Mars. We're talking about remote viewing as we discuss his book Sci Spies, and we talk about 9/11 and the post 9/11 period where we talk about his two books, War on Freedom and Inside Job. In the meantime, you can find more information on Jim Mars at his website, www.jimmars.com. That's jimmars.com. And, of course, you're listening to this, been all of America audio, so you must know the website, I guess, but I'll give it to you one more time. It's www.binnallofamerica.com. Esoteric madness, as only I can produce it along with my cohorts. 
whom I want to expressly thank for their support and guidance throughout the process of the creation of Banal America Audio. Chiron and Leslie, take a bow. You've earned it. Until you hear from me again, have a good one.